If you knew the future, how would that change your life? Just think about it. If you knew the future, how would that affect the choices you make, the decisions you make? How would it change your life if you knew the future? Okay, just think about it. Let's say it's the year 2010. They just invented Bitcoin. Do you know what that is? Bitcoin was just invented. And in 2010, you could buy one Bitcoin for 10 cents. So if you spent $100 on Bitcoin, today that same investment would be worth, you ready? $48 million today. Don't tell me if you knew the future, it wouldn't change your life. But man, just think about it. If you knew for certain what was going to happen, how would that affect the choices and the decisions you make if you knew the future? Okay, let's just think about it this way. Let's say for the guys, right? There's a girl that you like, but you're a little nervous, a little scared to ask her out. Let's say without a shadow of a doubt, you knew that you were going to get married. You're going to have three kids. You're going to have a great career, buy a house, travel the world, be married 50 years. And at the end of your life, surrounded by legacies and generations of grandchildren who love Jesus, right? That would give you confidence in asking her out. Amen? You'd be like, okay, yeah, I feel pretty good about that. Ladies, let's flip it over a little bit. Let's say you're dating a guy and you already kind of know he's a loser, but you look forward in the future and you're like, ain't no future happening there, right? Okay, they need to break up with him today. Okay, just so you know, the Lord brought you here so I could tell you that word, all right? Go ahead, break up with him because you know the future. It would really change the choices and decisions that you make. Now, let's say uh, you're a Dallas Cowboy fan. Okay, and you have been lamenting in ashes for the last two decades, but you know that in five years, them boys, they are going to be back to back to back, three peats, Super Bowl champions, right? You wouldn't feel embarrassed to wear that jersey anymore, right? You wouldn't, be, you wouldn't be embarrassed to be a fan. Why? Because you knew the future. Okay, let's just think about it in a little serious note. Let's say you knew that in the next six months, your parents would pass away. Well, that would really affect how you spent time with them, wouldn't it? You'd probably call them. You'd go visit them. You'd spend more time with them because you know that the, the time is short. And so you want to savor every memory and moment that you can with them. Or let's say you know that in 10 years, you're going to be diagnosed with cancer. How would that affect your life? Well, you would probably start eating differently, cut out red meat, quit smoking. You would probably, um, you know, diet, exercise, get some rest, maybe even start donating to charities, go on a color run. You would probably start investing in cancer research to offset what you know would happen in the future because you would have knowledge of what the future would hold. And so you would make decisions and actions to be able to, to be able to offset that because you know what the future, and if you know what the future is, well, then that could really change the way that you live your life, amen? Things would be very different, which is why Jesus gives us Mark chapter 13. In this section of scripture that we're studying, Jesus is not just predicting the future, he is prophesying what the future will be like. He's sitting down with his disciples on the Mount of Olives. It's a theological section called the Olivet Discourse or Jesus Mini Apocalypse, the short version of the book of Revelation. He's sitting down and he is preparing his disciples for the future. He is letting us know what the future holds. And that's why Jesus gives us this. And so my sermon title today, if you're taking notes, it's also the big idea for today. And here's what it is. Begin with the end in mind. If you're taking notes, write that down. Jesus gives us this so we can begin with the end in mind. We want to begin with the end in mind. So if you have your Bibles, turn with you to Mark chapter 13. We're going to start today in verse 24 as we begin with the end in mind. Now, our staff and team were talking about this series before we got started, and we were a little nervous, just to be honest. We were, we were a little, little nervous because 
over the last couple of months, like the church has really been growing. I mean, if you just look around the room, we had to add extra chairs to this service today because the church is growing. Lots of new people, lots of new friends and familiar faces that we haven't seen in a while. The church is growing. This first quarter has been an amazing quarter for us as a church. I mean, our attendance is up. Our giving is up. Our small groups are up. Every month when we do Next Steps, which is today, by the way, so hang out after service free lunch, and we'll watch your kids get connected in the church, okay? So Next Steps is packed every single month. People are getting connected, people are finding life, and people are experiencing life change through Jesus in amazing ways. Easter Sunday, the largest attended service in our church history, 422 people came to Easter Sunday service. Amazing. And 27 of those were baptized. I mean, people didn't even sign up for baptisms. They were running down the altar. They were jumping in with all their clothes on, cannonball for Jesus in that baptism tank. It was amazing. And people are hearing the message of the good news of Jesus Christ. They're responding to the gospel, giving their lives to Jesus, fired up, passionate about the church and the Lord. And they're like, Pastor, this was amazing. What are we going to do next week? Oh, don't worry. Come back next week because... It is the end of the world. <laughs> You're like, uh, really? I don't know if I'm ready for that. <laughs> That's why you need to come back, because you ain't ready. It's the end of the world. And so you're like, this week was amazing. What are you preaching on next week? Oh, don't worry. We're preaching on deception, persecution in the church, the rise of the Antichrist, the manifestation of Satan himself. There will be seven years of tribulation. The sun is going to stop shining. The moon is going to turn into blood. There's meteorites that are going to crash into the earth. Famine and plagues are going to fall everywhere. It's going to be worse than COVID-19, and there will be demon frogs. See you next week. And you're like, uh. And so to be honest, we were a little nervous about doing the Living in the Last Days series because we had saw so much growth happening in the church. But as this series has unfolded, listening to conversations in the lobby, those of you who are in small groups and talking with new believers and staff members, here's what I have come to the conclusion. I have come to the conclusion that this is actually the best sermon series for people who are new to faith. It's actually the best sermon series for new Christians, the best sermon series for those of you who are new to this church. And here's the reason why, because it helps you begin with the end in mind. For those of you who are new Christians, you're getting this day one. Like you're going to be miles ahead of people who have been following Jesus for 10 or 15 years. Because there's even people in the room right now who have been following Jesus for 10 years. And they ain't never heard this stuff. And you're getting it day one. So you're literally able to begin with the end in mind. And when you begin with the end in mind, it really, it really not only prepares you, but it protects you. It's going to protect you from falling into the pitfalls and traps that so many Christians today fall in. Like becoming a consumer Christian where you think church is just about getting a good word and a pat on the back. No, it's going to protect you from that. It's going to protect you from becoming a casual Christian where you're just settling for the everyday life. Just driving your car, singing the latest worship song, listening to the latest self-help album. And then all you're doing is just sharing a post on Instagram. You're like, I did my good deed for the day. It's going to protect you from becoming a consumer Christian, becoming a casual Christian. There ain't no room for sideline saints in the church. There ain't no room for holy hermits in the church. We don't need more armchair theologians who are going to pontificate about big words and they're going to study themselves into disobedience. That's not what's going to happen to you. You're going to be protected and you're going to be prepared because you know from day one, any moment, Jesus could come back. And when he does, I want to be ready. And so you're going to begin with the end in mind. But for those of you who have been following Jesus for a while, this is a reminder. It's a reminder that life is short and we are not guaranteed tomorrow because any moment, no one knows the day or the hour. Jesus could come back today, which means for those of you who are Christians and been following Jesus for a while, this is a reminder for you that you got to wake up every day and begin the day 
with the end in mind. What we need to do as a church is we need to be focused on this idea is that we want to begin with the end in mind because nobody knows when Jesus comes back. All we do know is that Jesus will come back. And so some of you, let me also say this. I've been saying it throughout the entire series. Some people have been, been saying, you know, like, Byron, that's, that's interesting, but I don't really know if I believe that. If I really believe that Jesus is coming back, I mean, this was written 2,000 years ago, and he still hasn't come back yet. You mean you really want to tell me that you believe that Jesus is coming again? I mean, Byron, you seem like a pretty smart guy. You seem like you're, you're intelligent, right? I mean, you have a, a beautiful family, your wife and your daughters, they're amazing. You have a college degree. Sometimes you tell funny jokes, but I mean, you seem like a, a really smart guy. How do you believe what you're actually teaching? Like, you really believe that there will be a one world ruler called the Antichrist? You really believe that this world is going to end? You really believe that Jesus is going to be coming back on a horse with fire in his eyes and a sword in his mouth to slay the dragon, the beast, and false prophets, and all of those things? You really mean to tell me that what you read here in the Bible and through the book of Revelation, you mean you really want to tell me you believe this? Yes. You say, well, why do you believe it? Here's what you need to know. We believe it because the Bible says it. We believe this because the Bible says this. We love the Bible here at our church, and we preach the Bible. And we believe that this word is not just a word about God, because there's a lot of places you can go where people are talking about God. You could go to Barnes & Noble, and there's an entire section of books where people are talking about God. But that's man talking about God. This is God talking to man. This is not a word about God. This is a word from God. This word is true. This word is trustworthy. This word tells us exactly who God is, what God does, and how we live our lives for him. This word is not just an old word. This is an eternal word. It is not outdated. It is not antiquated. It is timeless. Therefore, it is always timely. And so here at Redemption, we trust, we believe, and we preach the word of God. And we believe this because the Bible says this. Listen, here's, here's how we view life here at Redemption, is that we live under the authority of God's word. Okay? This is how most people live their lives. They want to live over the authority of God's word. So instead of living under it, they live over it. And they think that they know more than God does. And they think they are more intelligent than God is. And they think that they can tell God what he should believe rather than allowing God to tell them what they should believe. And so I'm going to stand over the word of God. Now, I don't really agree with this. I don't really like this. I disagree. And you're trying to stand over and judge God's word rather than allowing God's word to judge us. And so at Redemption, we don't stand over the word of God. We stand under the word of God. That this word has authority over my life. That what this word says, I listen, I obey, and I believe. So at Redemption, you need to understand this. If you're looking to find a new church home, unap unapologetically Bible folk. That's who we are. We love the Bible. We believe the Bible. We teach the Bible. And even when it comes to controversial and maybe little confusing sections of the scripture, we believe it because the Bible says it. Jesus says, I will come again. And so we believe that. Every Christian for the last 2,000 years has agreed that Jesus will return. The question is not, will Jesus come back? The question is, when? I love what my favorite theologian, John Frame, he, he actually says this. He says, every Christian believes that Jesus will return. We just can't seem to agree on when. But we all know that he will. So whether you're here and you're pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, pan-trib, you say, what's that? It's all going to pan out. I don't really know. I don't really know. It's all going to pan out in the end. Listen, hey, we are on the welcome committee, not the planning committee. Right? Jesus didn't ask for my advice when he should come back, but I need to be ready any moment, any hour, any day, because Jesus will come back. It's not a matter of if. It's a matter of when, and even Jesus tells us in the section we're going to study today that he will return. And so when he comes back, will we be ready? 
So the first thing that I want to tell us is three things today. Jesus closing out the Olivet Discourse is going to give us three ways to prepare for the last days. If you're taking notes, here's the first way for you to prepare for the last day. You ready? Get ready. That's the first one. Get ready. Here's what Jesus says. But in those days, you ever had one of those days? It's one of those days. But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken after the tribulation. So after everything that we've already studied so far in Mark, we're going to see the six signs of the end times that we studied Mark 1 through 13. We'll see the rise of the Antichrist with the abomination of desolation. Then we saw the seven years of tribulation last week. And now after that tribulation, after those things in those days, what's going to happen. Here's what we continue to read on. And then they will see the son of man, Jesus himself coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out his angels to gather his elect from the four winds and from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. So here's where we find ourselves in Mark chapter 13. It's the last week of Jesus' life. The first three years of his life, he's ministering in a region known as Galilee, preaching, teaching, healing, revealing the coming kingdom of God. He makes his way to Jerusalem, and now Mark really slows down, focuses in on the last week of Jesus' life. Monday is the triumphal entry. He rides in on a donkey. They're waving the the, the branches, saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then after that, On Tuesday, he goes into the temple and he starts just flipping over tables. He flips over tables, drives out the money changers. He's got a whip like Indiana Jones, just just driving all them suckers out. That's what Jesus be doing. And so after that, he leaves and then he goes back in on Wednesday morning and he gets in a fight with the religious leaders. How many of you are like, that's my Jesus, flipping tables and fighting folk. Like, that's a good Jesus, right? So he gets in fights with the religious leaders and the Sanhedrin, and he's getting in controversies and arguing, and for 10 hours, he's preaching a sermon. Y'all thought my sermons were long. Jesus' sermon was 10 hours. (laughs) After Jesus does that, him and his disciples, they leave, and they go up on top of the Mount of Olives, and they're overlooking the temple, and the disciples, they ask this really this really important question. One of his disciples, they, they see the temple, the, 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 the holy place of God, one of the wonders of the ancient world, and they say, Jesus, isn't that temple amazing? Isn't it so beautiful? And then Jesus responds, and he says, yes. And it would be terrible if somebody destroyed it. That's actually what he said. <laughs> They're like, um, really? He said, yeah, that temple is going to be destroyed. But what I find fascinating is this, is that they don't say, Jesus, you're crazy. That's what so many of us say. When we read this, we're like, Jesus, crazy. When we read this, we're like, that's impossible. That's never going to happen. But that's not what the disciples say. They've been following him for three years. They know not to really question the things that he says, but rather to trust the things that he says. So they, they ask this question. They say, tell us, when will these things happen? And that launches Jesus in to what is the Olivet Discourse. I want you to notice something. It doesn't say the Son of Man might come. It says he will come. It doesn't say he's thinking about coming. No, it says he will come. It doesn't say maybe he's going to come back if he feels like. That's not what it says. It says you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with power and glory to gather the elect. Who's that? That's Christians. That's those who are in Christ through faith, saved by grace, forgiven of their sins, place their hope and trust in him. And Jesus is going to come in glory and power. In those days, he's going to gather all of us together where he will be our king and we will be his people and we will live eternally in a new heavens and a new earth with a resurrected body, the life that God has always intended for us to live. So let me just ask you this question. Close your eyes and I just want you to imagine what this life looks like. Close your eyes and just think about a world that sin has not tarnished, that death has not even touched. Think about a a new world 
where there is no death, there is no disease, there is no demons or Satan to tempt us or to lure us away. There is no sin or besetting sins. Think about this world where there is no pain, there is no suffering, there is no poverty, there is no injustice, there is no racism, there is no violence, there is no sexism. Think about this new world where every tear will be wiped away, where every hurt, every hardship is going to be healed. Think about unprecedented joy, excitement. Think about fulfilling and living your dreams every single moment, every day. Think about living a life that God always intended for you to live. Now open your eyes. Is that the world that we live in? No, the world we live in is the exact opposite of what the Bible actually describes that Jesus desires for us. When you turn on the TV, when you scroll through social media, when you read the paper, when you're watching the news, all you see, war, injustice, famine, plague, violence, racism, sexism, all you see is the exact opposite of what God created this world to be and what God desires for your life to be. We're living literally in the opposite of God's intentions for us. And Jesus says, get ready because one day I'm coming back and I'm going to make all things new again. And so Jesus says that he is coming to gather us together to bring us home. After the times of tribulation, though. Because you're going to have to go through some tribulation. The best is yet to come, but the worst typically comes first. And what I love about Jesus is he's just, he's just honest. Because in week one, what we saw Jesus say is that this is but the beginning of birth pains. What he's referring to is the time of life that we are currently living in. That the time of difficulty, just like birth pains, are going to increase the closer and closer that you get to the day of delivery. That it's going to increase with greater frequency, greater, uh, greater, greater, um, what's the word? What's the word? Intensity. There you go. Thank you, Holy Ghost. Greater intensity. And then all of a sudden comes the moment of birth. And once you go through that and you hold the newborn baby, what, what do you get? you get? You get great joy. Do you not? But you have to go through the pain to be able to get the joy, right? For my parents, you understand this, amen? At least the ladies do. The dads, you don't understand. <laughs> like, how many of you have actually given birth, right? I'll put my hand down. I've never given birth, <laughs> but I have watched my wife give birth twice, okay? And just, it's beautiful and it's horrific at the same time. <laughs> I remember when my, my daughter Esther was born. Uh, we, we don't really know what to expect. We, we go in and uh, the, the doctors are, are he, one, he's wearing a face shield, which is like, why do you have that on? He's like, you'll find out. And I was like, ah. And then, they had a, and then they had a mirror on the ceiling. And they're like, do you want to watch? And Asher's like, yes. And I'm like, no. And Asher's like, you're watching. I was like, okay. I watched. I was like, no. Ah, that was really bad. You think giving birth traumatic, wa- husband watching give birth, you're like, oh, okay. So my, my, my daughter Esther was, was born, and uh, I remember when Ashley was pregnant, and she was so excited. She's like, oh, I'm so excited. When she first got pregnant, because, I mean, we were infertile for like six or seven years, praying and believing that God was going to do a miracle and we were going to be able to have a child. And after six or seven years, all of a sudden, you know, Ashley is, is pregnant. And so we're super excited. And I remember we were telling everybody and people are so excited. We posted it on Instagram and we got like 500 likes. Congratulations. Oh, I'm praying for you. Right. You remember that? And you, you post the test. You post the test on, on Instagram. First thing I think, Ashley, you peed on that. And now everybody's looking at your pee stick. And so she, she's like, no, nobody cares. But all the guys are like, every time you see her, like, they peed on that. They peed on that. So when you first get, when you're first pregnant, it's so adorable. And you, you walk around, like, rubbing your belly. I remember Ashley would stand in front of the cupboard. She's rubbing her belly. She's like, what am I going to eat today? And I was like, you're going to eat everything. Just go ahead. <laughs> And she did, right? And, and you, post, you post pictures. I'm, I'm six weeks pregnant. It's the size of a jelly bean. 15 weeks pregnant. It's the size of a G.I. Joe. You know, we keep posting all those, all those photos. And you're so happy and excited. You keep, you keep posting those pictures, right? And then 30, 39 weeks, you're like, get this baby out of me. <laughs> Ladies, true or false? It's true. It's true. 
See, women weren't made to be comfortable during pregnancy because you want to get that baby out of you, right? In the same way, Christians aren't made to be comfortable in this life because one day the end will come. And if we get too comfortable in this life, then we're not going to look forward to the joy that God has waiting for us. This is why Jesus says we must go through birthing pains because if we get too comfortable now, we will not be able to enjoy the life that Jesus has for us. So my question for you is this, are you ready for Jesus to come back? I remember when I was a younger Christian, I was not ready. I did not want Jesus to come back. I was like, Jesus, I don't want you coming back because I want to get married. I want to have sex. I want to, I want to, I want to have a, a child, right? I want to get a job. I want to see my kids grow up. I want to buy a house. And I was moving the goalposts of all these things that I, I wanted to do. And just let me tell you, I have done those things. I'm ready for Jesus to come back. Amen. Right, because we need to long for the day that Jesus is going to return. We should not be so comfortable in this world that we no longer look forward to the things that God wants to do in our life next. But there is trials. There is trouble. There are struggles. There are dark days and there are difficult days. There are painful days that you and me experience in this life. Maybe some of you, you come here today and you find yourself in the middle of a tribulation. Jesus says, after those tribulations, there is great joy that is waiting for you. But you find yourself today in a moment of tribulation, a moment of trial, something that you are going through, the way that life is not working out in this moment. It reminds you that life under the sun is the way that Solomon describes that it is in Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities, meaningless of meaningless. When you find yourself in that situation, you're reminded that you ain't Genesis 1. You are now in Genesis 3, and the wages of sin is death. And when you look around the world, that's what you see. When you look at the situation, that's what you see. That's the circumstances that you are in. There is no light at the end, and you don't know what comes next. Jesus reminds us these things because he wants us to know that you may not know what the future holds, but if you know me, I hold the future. If you're taking notes, I want you to write that down, that we may not know what the future holds, but we do know the one who holds the future. So we can trust him. We can believe in him. We can give our faith to him. We can rely on him. We can depend on him because we may not know what the future holds, but redemption, we know the one who holds the future and he has a great plan for you. He has a great promise for you. Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. I would not have told you if that wasn't true. Get ready, I'm coming back soon. We may not know what the future holds, but redemption, we know the one who holds the future. And he says, I'm coming with glory. That means it's gonna be better than anything you can imagine. Unprecedented, unparalleled, without equal. And he's coming with power. That's weight, that's worthiness, that's majesty, that's beauty, that's splendor, that's the power and the authority to overcome all things and to make all things brand new. He's coming with glory. He's coming with power. And he is coming to gather the saints and the elect, those who believe in him, and bring them home into a life forevermore. Jesus says, are you ready? Are you ready for that day? The second thing Jesus tells us is this, get ready. The first point was get ready. The second point is get ready. Here's what Jesus says, from the fig tree, learn this lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and put out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see that these things are taking place, you also know that he is near. He is at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, only the Father. So be on guard, keep away for you do not know when the time will come. Now, let's be honest. When we first started this Living in the Last Days series, how many of y'all were a little nervous? Go ahead. It's okay. It's a safe place. Okay. No. okay, thank you, brother. Thank you, my man. A little nervous studying the end times because maybe you grew up in a church like me where that's like all they talked about. Like, are you rapture ready? Are you rapture ready? Because they're building the guillotines. The tattoos on your forehead's coming. Are you rapture ready? I remember when I was a little kid, right? Um, 
I used to, every time I got lost at Market Basket, think I missed the rapture. I'd be like, down aisle six, and I'd be like, where's my Nana? Where's my Nana? And I'd be going up front to the Market Basket and be like, hey, uh, I think I got left behind. I can't find my, can't find my Nana. I remember one time, my, my grandparents, raise your hand if that happened to you. Okay, there we go. I remember one time when my grandparents didn't come home. They were a little late getting home from work, and I was home alone. And I thought, oh, no, something terrible. This is before we had cell phones. So we actually had, like, those landline phones with a cord. All the dinosaurs in the room, remember that, had a cord. And so I couldn't just text her, right? So I, had to, I called down to the church office because I knew if Miss Rogers, the secretary, answered the phone, if she ain't made it, ain't nobody going, Okay. <laughs> So I called down and Miss Rogers answered the phone. Hello, welcome to church. And I'm like, oh, so good. And I just hang up on her. <laughs> I made it. And so some of you grew up in a, in a church like that. And so you kind of went in the opposite direction. You think just because we don't know everything, we don't know anything. Like eschatology, fancy college word for study of the end times. is kind of like the drunk uncle who shows up and makes a mess and you have to pick it up when they leave. And you're like, I don't want anything to do with that. And then others of you, you, you come in and you just never studied it or maybe you're new to the church. And so you, you kind of come to this conclusion that ah, it's just really not for me. It makes you anxious, makes you a little bit nervous. And so you don't really even bother with it. And then you sit through all four weeks of the Living in the Last Days series and you're like, yeah, I don't know why I was scared. How many of you are like, actually, this kind of seems exciting. This seems a little fun. I'm not sure why I was so nervous. I think I can do this. And then the question becomes, why is there so much controversy over this? Where does all the confusion come from? Great question. Glad you asked, because that's my next point. Um, it comes from this verse right here. From the fig tree, learn this lesson. When the branches put out its leaves, you know that summer is near. Due to a bad exegesis and a butchering of this verse right here, it's led to a lot of false prophecies and false teachings when it comes to the end times. So remember in week one when I talked about beware of false prophets, false Christs who are always saying, he's coming, this is him, don't listen to them. Well, it really comes from a bad understanding of this verse right here about the fig tree. Now, if you remember back in Mark chapter 12, as Jesus leaving the temple, he curses the fig tree, it withers away and dies. Do y'all remember that? Okay, and so he curses the fig tree. In that sermon, I told you the fig tree is symbolic of the nation of Israel. So in Mark 12, he curses the fig tree. Mark 13, he says, when you see the fig tree and its branches put forth fruit, the end is near and one generation will pass away. You're saying, Pastor, I do not know where you're going with this. It's okay. We're going to get down in the weeds for a little bit, but you are smart and we can do this. So the fig tree, they would say, represents the nation of Israel. And in 1948, Israel became a nation. So in 2,000 years ago, Israel is cursed. They're exiles for the last 2,000 years. They have no homeland. They can't go to the temple. They can't perform their sacrifices. They don't have a priest. And so they're unable to perform their religious duties or their ceremonial customs. And then all of a sudden, after World War II and the Holocaust, overnight in a miracle, boom, 1948, Israel becomes a nation again. The fig tree is now putting forth its fruit. Not one generation will pass away who see this. So what's a generation? It's 40 years. A biblical generation, they would say, is 40 years. This is why people were saying Jesus is coming back in the 80s. And there was a big end times craze in the 1980s about everybody saying the end is near. And then Wisenhunt, Edgar Wisenhunt, wrote a book called 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Come Back in 1988. Because what's 40 years after 1948? 88. He got that from a misinterpretation of this text. Even though the very next line, Jesus says, no one knows, so don't set a date. He's like, I know. <laughs> Jesus is like, not even the son knows. He's like, I know more than Jesus. I set a date, right? Okay, if that's the case, like you think you know more than Jesus, you're probably going to be wrong. I mean, God might very well just be up in heaven going like, oh, they guessed a date. Just push it back another year. And, oh, they guessed a date. I'll just push that back. You keep guessing. I'm going to keep changing it, all right? And so no one knows, so I could just keep erasing. That could be what he's doing. I don't know. Like, like, you know, you might be like, I think it's, you know, 2072, August 2nd at 6 p.m. 
You know, the angels are like, hey, you got to change that date again. You're like, oh, man, we got to just, just keep pushing it back, delaying the inevitable. But either way, so he said in 88. And when that didn't happen, he, he came out with another book called 89 Reasons in 89, 91 Reasons in 91, 92 and 92, and 97 and 97, until eventually he's like, maybe I don't know what I'm talking about. And he stopped writing books. But then they come along again and they said, well, no, no, no. A generation's not 40 years. A generation's actually 70 years. And so in 70 years, and this is how we have Harold Camping. Those of you might remember the, the radio broadcast owner who said that in May of the late 20, 20, uh, 2000s, Jesus would return. It didn't happen, so he moved his date back to September. He said his math was off, and then all of a sudden it didn't happen in September. He's like, my bad. But only after people had sold their homes, cashed out their retirement, all of their investments, and basically bankrupted their entire life because they believed in this person. And so you have all of these false prophets, maybe on television, Christian television, maybe they're selling hawking books, maybe they're going on speaking tours, and there are false prophets who make a profit off of your panic. And so they have 40 years, they have 70 years, and I'm telling you this, and I'm getting down into the weeds on this because here's what I want you to know. Now there's even people saying that a biblical generation's 100 years, and so get ready for an onslaught of books and false teaching that Jesus will come back in 2048. I'm just telling you, you need to get ready. See, the thing is that Jesus doesn't tell us this about the fig tree bearing its fruit and not one generation will pass away to scare us. He's not telling us these things to make us nervous. He's not saying, hey, the generation who sees this take place, y'all all need to go get ready by buying all the doomsday prepper stuff, building a bomb shelter in your backyard. You need to get all of the five-gallon buckets of oatmeal, and you need to figure out how to load your guns and, and stockpile ammunition. He, he doesn't tell us so we can go doomsday prepper or to scare us. Here's the reason why Jesus tells us these things. He tells us so that way we can be prepared. The purpose is not to set a date. The purpose is to course correct our hearts. That at any moment, any hour, any day, Jesus can return. It could be 100 years from now. It could be 40 years from now. It could be before this sermon is even finished, Jesus could come back. No one knows the day nor the hour. And so we always need to be ready. The goal is not to scare us, but rather the goal is to prepare us. Jesus doesn't tell us these things to freak us out. He tells us so that way we might have faith. Jesus doesn't tell us these things to concern us, but to comfort us, to convict us, and to prevent us from giving into compromise. Jesus tells us these things so that way we can have faith. The goal is not to be scared. The goal for us as a church is to live our lives by being prepared. And so redemption, it's been a great honor to be able to preach what might be the most confusing, debated, and difficult sections of Scripture in all of the Bible. And so I want to publicly say thank you guys for hanging out with us over the last four weeks. Does it help? Did it help you? Are you excited? You're like, oh, I'm going to go read Revelation when I get home today. It's amazing. Right? Is that you? Right? Because my, my hope and prayer is that as a pastor, I, I get to prepare you. Because one day every single one of us will stand before God on judgment day. Whether through your death or through his second coming, either way, we're all going to have our day in court. And when you stand before the Lord, here's my prayer, that you will be prepared. See, you've heard sermons over John 3.16. You've heard the sermons over Jeremiah 29.11. You know about King David, but the Bible's about more than just King David. The Bible's ultimately about King Jesus. And there's a lot of stuff in here. And my job as your pastor is not to preach the parts that you like or the parts that you already know. My job as your pastor is just to open up God's word and preach. And so I didn't pick this series. So for those of you who are new and you're like, um, did he lose his mind? Why is he preaching on the end times? Was he watching too much, too much news? Did he, did he watch too much Netflix and he saw a good sci-fi movie and just thought, man, that'll make a great sermon series. Let me go ahead and just preach on the end times, right? No, no, no. We actually started the book of Mark in March of 2018, three years ago. We started preaching through the book of Mark. That's how we preach here at Redemption. We just go verse by verse, line by line, through entire books of the Bible. And 
We were supposed to be in Mark 13 before COVID when everything was nice and easy and comfortable in life and everybody was doing just great. And then COVID happened and we put a pause on it. And now that we're reopened, church is growing, people are coming back. They have a lot of questions. Open up Mark. Oh, Mark 13 about the, this seems very timely. (laughs) I told you it's not an ancient book. It's a timely book. And so God has a word and brought all of us here today because this is exactly where we find ourselves. Listen, my goal is to preach through the entire Bible. Right? That's, that's my goal before I die or before I retire. My job is to preach from Genesis through the book of Revelation, verse by verse, covering the entire scriptures. So at the end of Mark, we're gonna, that'll be 10 books, I believe. It took me three years to do Mark. I got like 60 more to go. Y'all pray for me, okay? <laughs> But after we finish Mark, we're going to dive into the book of Joshua, and we're going to spend the fall in the book of Joshua. And then after Joshua, as we get ready to move into our brand new building, we're going to do 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John in a series called Love One Another, because lots of new people coming in, and so we got to show them the love of Jesus. So my prayer and my dream is that I would preach straight through the entire Bible. And why do I do that? I do that so that way you can be prepared. So that way, when you stand before God on that day, you are ready, you are prepared, so that way you can receive your rewards and hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. And so I love you, Redemption. I want to say personally, thank you so much for giving me the great privilege and honor to preach the Bible here. It really is an honor to be able to serve at a church that I get to preach controversial subjects I get to say a lot of big words that people don't know, but you love them and you learn from them. I love that I get to preach topics that many preachers don't get a chance to preach over. And I also love that y'all don't give me a clock because I can just keep going. (laughs) So thank you for that. Thank you for the great privilege. It is a wonderful privilege to be able to serve a church that loves God's word where we can just open the Bible and we can preach. Which leads to the final point. Jesus is going to give a parable, and you'll never guess what it's about. Get ready. (laughs) Point one, Jesus says, get ready. Point two, Jesus says, get ready. Point three, Jesus says, get ready. Here's what he says. It's like a man who's going on a journey. When he leaves home and he puts his servants in charge, each with his work and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when it's when the master of the house will come, in the evening, in the midnight, when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to all, I say, what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Who is the Who is the master of this house? It's Jesus. A parable is a short story with a big idea. And so Jesus would be the master of the house. Who are the servants? That's you, that's me, that's the church. We are the servants of God. And what is the the house? The house is the world. The house is our life. So what Jesus says is that the master is going away and he's put the servants in charge. One day he's going to come back. So don't fall asleep on me. The interpretation of the parable is this. Jesus is going away. He put the church in charge. Let's go change the world. That's what Jesus is saying, because he's going to come back, and we cannot be a church that is asleep. This is a parable of the Great Commission. The last words that Jesus said to his disciples are the first words that he says to us. Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded of you. And lo, I am with you always, even when? To the ends of the age. That's an eschatological promise. That until Jesus comes back, we got work to do. Don't let Jesus come back and find you sleeping. That this is the Great Commission. And for 2,000 years, every single Christian who's been sitting in a chair just like you has been committed to fulfilling the Great Commission. God's promise is our purpose. And for two millennia, men and women and children have been launching gospel-centered movements in the heart of their city So that way every man, woman, and child can experience life change through Jesus. He says, go make disciples. In Acts chapter 1, the disciples ask him, Lord, is it it, now are you going to come back and restore the kingdom to Israel? He says, that's not for you to know. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go. 
I want you to go be my witnesses from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth that Jesus has left us in charge as the church, which means we need to go out and change the world lest Jesus come back and find us asleep. And here's my concern is that we have a generation of Christians in this nation who are sleeping. For 2,000 years, the church has taught these things. The mantle has been handed to us. The torch has been given to us. The great commission has been passed down. And now we are to be committed that 2,000 years for the last history, churches, Christians, believers, just like yourself, have been fulfilling the great commission. But my fear is this. Instead of fulfilling the great commission, we're too busy fulfilling ourselves. That we have become too comfortable in this world. That we are more concerned with the worries of this world than the worthiness of our God. My fear is that many of us, we have become so comfortable in this world that we are no longer comforted by these words that Jesus says, get ready. We're not comforted by those things because we're comforted by other things. We have become comfortable. We're comfortable in easy believerism. I walked the aisle, I prayed the prayer, I raised my hand. Isn't that enough? We're comfortable listening to the latest Spotify worship album in our car, driving down the road. We're comfortable pretending that we retweeted a Bible verse. That means we read our Bible for the day. We're comfortable in this world. We're so comfortable that we would rather sit at home on our couch than get up and get our kids dressed and bring them to church. We are comfortable with tithing 10% to Starbucks, but we don't tithe towards the Lord. We are comfortable because we're so focused on our children's extracurricular activities that we are no longer concerned by their eternal destinies. We spend five hours a day on our phone, but we don't have time to pray. Listen, if your screen time is five hours, but your prayer time is less in five minutes, you ain't ready. My concern is that we are so comfortable in this life that when we think about the next one, we say, it can wait. Because that's the opposite of what Jesus tells us to do. Jesus says, get ready. You don't know when, church, I have chosen you and called you to change the world. And if Jesus ain't come back yet, you're not done. Until you see him coming on the clouds, you got to go. You got to share your faith. You got to pray for people. You got to read your Bible. Be a member of a church. Get in a small group. Invest and devote to other people. You, You got work to do, church. Don't let the master come back and find you asleep. Here's what we we need to do. We need to plan as if Jesus isn't coming back for 100 years. But we need to live as if he's coming back today. Go ahead, plan as if he ain't coming back for 100 years. Listen, I don't want you to hear this message and think, I'm quitting my job. I'm going in on Monday, and I'm telling my boss what he can do. (laughs) He can come to church with me. That's what he can do, right? I don't want you to quit your job. I don't want you to cash out all of your retirement. I don't want you to move to Jasper and get a bomb shelter and start hoarding oatmeal and figuring out how to drink your own urine, okay? I don't want you to do that. You're like, it's nutritious and delicious. Don't do that. (laughs) I had Trevor look up this week. We found reusable toilet paper. Don't do that. Plan as if Jesus isn't coming back for 100 years. So what does that mean? That means, that means enjoy your life, right? So, so if you're married, take your spouse out on a date, right? If, 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 you're, if you're that guy I talked about at the beginning of the sermon who's too scared to ask that girl out, go ahead, ask her out. If you're that girl who is dating the loser, go ahead, dump him. Plan as if you're going to live for 100 years. Have some fun. Go on vacation. Life is too short to drink cheap wine. Make new friends. 
Live like you're going to live for 100 days or for 100 years. <laughs> I was doing really good. I was doing really good. <laughs> Become a member of a church. Come to next steps with us today. Begin tithing. Give to the Lord, serve, bless, love, help as many people as you can so you can make a difference in this world. Go ahead, plan as if Jesus isn't coming back for 100 years, but live as if he could come back today. Because no one knows when the master will return, lest he find us asleep. Plan as if he's not coming back for 100 years. Live as if he's coming back today. I love what Jonathan Edwards, one of the greatest minds in American history and a Puritan theologian, he, he says this, resolved. It's a decision he made in his life. He repeats these resolutions to himself as affirmations every single day for his entire life. He had a list of affirmations that he would say, and every single day he would look himself in the mirror and he would say, resolved, never to do anything today that I would be afraid to do if I knew it was the last hour of my life. So my question for you is this, what are you doing today that you would, be, you would not do if you knew that this would be the last day? Then you probably shouldn't be doing it today. This is what it means to begin with the end in mind. If you're doing something today that you would not be proud of or excited about, that you might be embarrassed or ashamed of on the day Jesus comes back, you shouldn't be doing it at all. If Jesus were to come back and find you doing what you were doing on that moment, it would not be a good day. I'm not saying that you lose your salvation for those things, but I'm telling you there is a sanctification process that end times theology expedites in your soul. When you know that at any moment Jesus can return. If he came back Friday, would you be proud of the decisions and choices that you make? If he comes back next Wednesday, would you be would you be excited about where you're at on the day that the Lord returns? If you don't want to be there, you shouldn't have been there in the beginning. If it doesn't matter to you now, it shouldn't matter to you then. If you're worried about things that in eternity have no consequence, then you probably shouldn't sweat the small stuff today. Don't do anything that you wouldn't do if you knew it was the last hour of your life. This is what it means to begin with the end in mind. And this really reorders our priorities and gives us focus, doesn't it? And so don't do anything you wouldn't do. But at the same time, what do you need to do? What do you, what do you need to do? If you, if you, for those of you who are husbands, if you knew that Jesus is coming back tomorrow, wouldn't that change the way you love your wife? Then you should love your wife like that today. For you, for you ladies, if you knew that Jesus is coming back, wouldn't that affect the way that you treat your husband? That's the way you should be treating your husband every single day. What would you do with your kids if you knew you had 24 hours left to spend with your kids? Would you still be glued to your phone and working all that overtime and abandoning and neglecting your children? No, you wouldn't do that. You know what you would do? I have 24 hours, so I'm going to bring my kids close to me, and I'm going to love them, I'm going to hug them, I'm going to look them in the eye and tell you, Daddy is proud of you, and I love you so much. If that's the case... That's what you should be doing today. You need to tell your kids you're proud of them and you love them. And you tell your wife that you love her. And tell your husband that you love him too. On that day, do you want to be found holding on to unforgiveness towards others? Shame towards yourself? Do you want to be found on that day nursing hurts and bitterness and wounds? I mean, how tragic would it be to go to heaven holding on to all of the hurts that you experienced in life and standing before Jesus and your, your arms are too heavy to even lift them up to praise him? You gotta let that stuff go. Life is too short to be holding on to those things that hold you back. You don't know when he's coming back. So you gotta let those things go. If Jesus were to come back and you had 24 hours, how would you live? I'd call my mom. If that's what you would do on that day, that's what you should do today. You should forgive. You should love. 
you should pick up the phone and call somebody. You should go tell somebody about Jesus. How many of you have somebody that you know and love who doesn't know Jesus, and you've been afraid to tell them about, about Jesus? This gives us boldness to share our faith. Who would you go pray for? Who would you take out for coffee? Then you should do that today. Don't put off till tomorrow because tomorrow's not guaranteed. All you got is today. Plan as if Jesus isn't coming back for 100 years, but live every day like he could come back tonight. That's what it means to begin with the end in mind. For those of you who are new Christians, if you get this day one, man, watch out because we are about to do amazing things in this church. For those of you who are been Christians for a while and you forgot this, I'm here to remind you today, begin this day with the end in mind. When you leave this place, do something different. Pretend like today is the last day of your life. And that's how together will make a difference in this world. Jesus tells us the future so that way we can reorder our lives. He lets us know in Mark 13, this is what the future looks like. Now, how are you going to live in light of that? And so I want to close this message with four questions. There was one question asked by the disciples at the beginning, which launched into Mark 13. And so I found it fitting to close this series with a series of questions, four sermons, four questions. You like that? I even began this sermon series with the end in mind. So I was thinking about this. So we're going to close with four questions. The first question is this, are you a Christian? Like not just like, oh yeah, I believe in God. No, no, no. Like when, when he comes in power and glory to gather his elect, are you going to be among the elect? Are you going to be one of those who he comes to gather with him? You say, well, how, how do I know? It's, it's repentance. It's turning from your sins and trusting in Jesus and walking with him. The, the Puritans, they used to call this living quorum Deo, which means I'm living in the face of God. Are you living in the face of God? That's what repentance is. Not in darkness, but in light. Not in sin, but in forgiveness and worthiness because of the Son. Are you living quorum Deo? Are you a Christian? If not, you should become one today. Give your life to Jesus because he's got a better life waiting for you. Second question is this, what do you need to stop doing? It's a sobering reminder for us. What are you doing today that if Jesus were to come back, you'd be a little disappointed? Okay, then you need to stop that. Just, just stop. As a pastor, I, I just always wanted to tell you all that. Stop it. <laughs> but just, just stop. Like if Jesus were coming back today and you were living with your boyfriend or girlfriend, that's not a situation you want to be in. So you should find a way to move out and do it right. If you're sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend, that's not God's best for your life. So stop. If, if you're holding on to bitterness and unforgiveness, lay that down. Stop. Get some help. If you're in addiction, stop. Go to freedom. Go to some recovery program. If you drink too much, go ahead. Just, just stop. Because you don't want to be there when Jesus returns. And so you shouldn't be there today. So what are you doing in your life that if Jesus were to come back today, you would not be proud of? Then you shouldn't be doing that, period. And then the third thing is, what do you need to start doing? So what do you need to start doing today? I got one day? Well, man, that just changes the way you live, doesn't it? Say, so I'm going to start sharing my faith. I'm going to start joining a small group. I'm going to start a small group. I don't know when Jesus is coming back, so I'm going to make a big difference. I'm going to go to Next Steps. I'm going to eat the food while they watch my kids, and I'm going to get connected into the church. I'm going to start tithing. And I'll tell you what, when you start tithing, you get a better return on your investment than anyone ever got with their Bitcoin because you got treasure in heaven now, amen? And so I'm going to start tithing. I'm going to start serving, start giving. I'm going to start taking people out for coffee. I'm going to, I'm going to carry a little bag in my car when I see a, a, a homeless person on the street. I'm going to bless them with that. I'm going to start doing these things to reorder my life so that way I can make the greatest impact and have the greatest reward. I'm going to start living my life with meaning and purpose and value and reason, and I'm going to make a difference because the master's coming back, and I ain't going to be asleep. He put me in charge of this church. I'm going to change the world. And then my last question is this. Number four, what do you... What are you looking forward to? 
Have you become so comfortable in this world that you don't really want Jesus to come back because you think you have a better life than what he promises for you? What are you looking forward to? I'll tell you what I'm looking forward to. I'm looking forward to the day that Jesus returns. And I look up and I see Jesus. And I see those hands that bore the marks of my sin. I see him smile at me. My Lord, with a smile on his face. Welcome home. I made a whole new world and I want you to come live in it with me and I'll be your Lord and you'll be my people and there will be no tears, no pain, no heartache, no heartbreak, no grief, no shame, no war, no, invi- no, no injustice, no violence, no racism, no people dying, no disease, no COVID, no masks, amen. And then I get to gather around all of you and all the saints for the last 2,000 years, all the Christians, all my brothers and sisters I've never got a chance to meet. I gather around the feet of Jesus and I look up and we're all singing his praises. Hallelujah, glory, glory to the King, the name above all names. And our King has come and he rules with glory and with power. I'm looking forward to that day. But you know what? We can live that way every day as we behold the glory of our King. You don't have to wait till you get to heaven to live with Jesus. You can live with him today. And so if you're taking notes, here's the last line and we'll close. Redemption, we are living in the last days. So we should live every day like it's our last.